Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. I'm mixing up the format a bit this week. First, a shorter and mostly spoiler-free discussion of Grace of Kings, focused on the two central protagonists, how they're established, and our expectations for heroism. Second, a look back at a number of the interviews I've run and one upcoming guest, talking about how they got into the genre. As always, I'll close with a memory of a significant book. So at this point, were you assuming Mata was the hero? Oh yeah. Here's our big martial leader. I read it differently. It's the troublemaker who's the hero. It's the nail that sticks up, who somehow ends up rising above everything because they just cannot go along to get along. So I was like, oh, Cooney is totally the hero. Cooney, it's almost like a grace. But Mata's got a ridiculous training montage, right? <laughs> Q-Eye of the Tiger. Someone killed my family, and I am the last person. Older relative takes me out in the woods. Live in the woods for 12 years, learning to become the superhero, and at the end of it, I do something special with my sword. But, I mean, basically, Mata learns the importance of his kingdom Coker's martial path and his clan's glorious history, ate only meat, bathed only in cold water, helped the fishermen unload their catch so that he could get big and strong, always picked the longer and more arduous path. Mata became the super warrior. I, I can't read Mata's uncle taking him out in the wilderness and then Mata doing all of this stuff and always working twice as hard and everything else as anything other than absolute abuse anything other than this is how you create the ultimate martial hero and it is i think intentionally not realistic i think that early on you have to be sort of chosen in some fashion and ordained, and either you are Cooney and have superhuman charisma and luck and fortune, or you are Mata and you have superhuman training and overcoming adversity, but that what is important is that you be superhuman. I mean, what we're really talking about here are tropes. There, your hero starts out the story saying, you know, one of these days, I'm going to run this place. And everybody says, dude, you're just a kid. So the kid says, I'm going to run this place. I'm going to go find somebody to be my teacher because I need to learn more so that I, or be stronger or mm -hmm. be more skillful. And that's when you have the denial of the call comes from the teacher who's like, look, you're a pipsqueak. I don't want to teach you. Mm -hmm. But our hero has ambitions. He or she is determined. And they say, you know, I'm going to chop wood, carry water, etc." So they get their teacher. The first person they run up against is going to be their rival. And they're going to be like, I got my ass kicked. Now I need to work right. twice as hard. By the end of it, the sheer power of their heart and their willingness to follow this ambition at all costs wins their rival over. And now they have their first friend. By the end of most of these stories, you'll have a cast of anywhere from 10 to 15 people who are all former rivals who are now all part of the heroes group. And inevitably, what wins that final battle is not that our hero is that heroic, but that our hero comes with a collection of friends. Mm -hmm. He's been able to draw enough people to him or to her that they're able to win. And that's why the charisma that you see with Cooney, to me, said, this is the hero. Because Mata's busy over there learning how to beat things up, but what's really going to win the day, if we're following the tropes, is being able to draw enough people to you 
who may not necessarily always agree with you, but they're willing to throw in with you because of the truth of your heart, the strength of your ambition and your heart, and that fundamental drive that exists within you that is not to be the superior one above all else. I'm generalizing across many, many stories, but we're all familiar with Campbell's flattened myth of the world sort of thing where the chosen one is in a farm and doesn't know anything and and along comes somebody who says hey this is the prophecy you're going to fulfill this now i'm going to drag you kicking and screaming off make you power up until you're able to defeat the evil one right so so the western that's the western pattern i mean whether you are literally a farm boy or not. You are somebody who's usually pretty low on things with no ambition of ever really being more. Right. And what is important about you is that you are chosen. Yes. Having looked at those two different models of heroism, it is interesting to look back at what I said about Kuni and Mata and then to listen to Kuni in his own words. I think you have to be chosen. Either you are Kuni and have superhuman charisma and luck and fortune. He's speaking to Gia and he says, I have no idea. All life is an experiment. Who can plan so far ahead? I just promised myself to do the most interesting thing every time there's an opportunity. Or you are Mata and you have superhuman training. Well, I got into science fiction the same way every single human being you'll ever talk to does. When I was a kid, I was handed some. And that is everyone's story. I've loved science fiction fantasy media as long as I can remember. My parents took me to see two movies. One of them was Gandhi, and the other one was Star Wars. The only people who are interesting because of that event is people who come back to science fiction as adults. Ironically, my intro to the genre is actually relatively recent. Growing up, I read almost exclusively horror. I grew up on the Goosebumps, transitioned into Dean Koontz and Stephen King. But I always loved sci-fi TV and movies. I always watched Star Trek The Next Generation with my brother. And so I realized if I loved watching it, why not read it? Here in Memphis, because I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. When I was in elementary school here, we had a program called Accelerated Reader. It was like a points system. So you read a book, and when you finished the book, you would take a little test on it, and you get points. I remember very vividly that, like, The Chronicles of Narnia was six points. I read a couple, like, sci-fi books featuring dinosaurs. I really liked dinosaurs back then. And then I discovered David Eddings, and it kind of went from there. I read The Hobbit. I tried to read Lord of the Rings, and I think that kind of, like, stopped me from reading speculative fiction altogether. My moment of epiphany, I think, came in 1971 when I was in the school. We were issued with lists in those days of books we ought to read. So um, being a good little scholar, I was looking around and Lord of the Rings was on this. I had literally no idea what it was about. And I remember standing in the library, opening up the first volume and looking at it and thinking, why did nobody tell me this was about hobbits? Because uh, at that point I had read The Hobbit and enjoyed it immensely. Uh, also, um, Tovey Janssen's Finn Family Moomintral, which we were read uh, in class at school uh, when I was about seven or eight. And then um, after I discovered Lord of the Rings and read it obsessively for, oh... I just literally, as I stopped reading the end, I'd start reading it again. Um, I, I lived with this book very solidly for a year or two, and I wanted more like that. I um, started reading a lot of science fiction quite young. Started with some of the Tom Swift books. He was a young inventor. Each book saw him inventing some new gadget that ended up leading to shenanigans. And I picked up Michael Crichton, being 
sort of dinosaur-obsessed. I read Jurassic Park just before the film came out. I still remember sitting in the theater trying to finish the book. So, a couple of people have talked about a book that has got them into science fiction, and that has not been what my experience has been like at all. The first book I remember reading on my own was My Father's Dragon, and ever since then I've just always read fantasy and science fiction books. During my teenage years, I was able to find stuff by women writers. At some point, I you know, got interested in uh, reading the classics, and I read a bunch of Heinlein and Niven and Asimov and whatever in high school, which I don't actually recommend you do. I guess as a kid, I was really into horror and mystery, actually, more than fantasy at first. Edgar Allan Poe was an early favorite of mine. In the third grade, we were supposed to memorize a poem for class, and I was like, I'm memorizing the Raven. And I read all the Nancy Drew books that my mom had and Hardy Boys. Well, my mom really liked Star Trek, and so we always were watching Star Trek. Every time we went on a road trip anywhere, my dad always put on the audiobook of Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. The, the Wizard of Earthsea books were also pretty early for me, dealing with dragons. And one that really stuck with me, The Princess and the Goblin by George MacDonald. I've always been an avid reader for fantasy. The novel I read was maybe a book called Elsewhere by Gabriel Zevin. People who are interesting, there's people who come back to Stroud Science Fiction. And it took starting to read Redwall to bring me back. But you came back to it. Because in my mind, science fiction, fantasy, and horror are so concept-driven. Each episode closes with a memory of a significant book. The right book at the right time, an interesting find, or just something that stuck around. This week, I want to talk about The Silmarillion, which is sometimes a bit of a test book to see just how far into the Tolkien fandom someone has fallen. I will include a picture of my battered copy of the letters, as well as the entire histories of Middle-earth on my shelf, some of which I have read outside of assigned class reading, in case you are wondering how much further it's possible to fall. The Silmarillion is Tolkien's famous mythology. The backstory from the creation of Middle-earth through the endless elven battles with Morgoth, salvation by Eärendil, the story of Numenor and its fall, all stitched together and recreated by his son Christopher. It's a distinctly different book from Lord of the Rings, still very long but full of heroic episodes and myth rather than a defined narrative. I love it unconditionally, although I return to it rarely. I bring it up partly to tweak Fishtrap's nose since we had a brief discussion on Twitter about what my enjoyment of the Silmarillion suggests about me, but also because it came up recently when I was driving and retelling Lord of the Rings to my daughter. Sam and Frodo confronted Shelob, Frodo pulled out the star glass, the light when all other lights go out, a phrase that delights her, and she asked about Shelob. Who is she, and why doesn't she like the light, Daddy? Well, kiddo. Shelob is a descendant of Ungoliant, the great spider who joined Melkor in draining the light of the two trees of Valinor in the first age. She always likes darkness, and usually her tunnels and webs keep away even the light of the moon. But remember that Starglass has the light of Arendelle, who sailed among the stars with the last Silmaril, and the light of the Silmaril was the light of the trees that Fëanor trapped in the three great gems. So Frodo's using a reflection of the light of those trees to chase Shelob away. At some point, I think she lost the thread, but that moment does crystallize one of the things that I love so much about the Silmarillion and the world that Tolkien created, which probably does explain a lot about me. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at jsuttonmorse. The show is on Twitter at kingcabbagecast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. 
The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.